Daniel chapter 8, reading the entire chapter, says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long will the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one have the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and he called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near, and where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold faiths 
one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and didn't understand it. This is God's word. Father, we come before you again today and we ask for your help. We thank you for your eternal word, which, as we've already noticed, noted has been written so many years before we ever existed and yet it has incredible application and help for us today and will should you tarry in coming for years to come we know that the grass withers and flowers fade but the word of god stands forever so i pray that this book will live for us this morning in jesus name amen so as we continue through our uh, look at daniel we have a overarching theme which is simply God reigns and my subtitle for this particular chapter is God reigns living faithfully till the end there's a question that uh, one individual asked and I think it's a great way to at least begin thinking why is a two-bit king all important first the good news Daniel 8 I think is a fairly easy chapter to understand there's very little disagreement among those who have written on the book about who the identity is of the main characters. And second, a little bit more good news. Daniel 8, I think, is of considerable relevance for us today. Remember, we have called the title of the series a Survival Manual for the Saints. And we're not just talking about the Old Testament saints when we use that particular phrase. It's helpful for us to maybe just get our bearings again of uh, where we've uh, come and where we're going. And uh, just get a little bit of the lay of the land. You might remember chapter 7. That was the end of the Aramaic section and, in a sense, a conclusion of uh, chapters 2 to 7. And there Daniel gave us a comprehensive worldview of what the world will be like until the very end when the final Antichrist comes and Christ returns. He describes a scene on earth in heaven and then back on earth. He begins on earth just by saying to us that the kingdoms of men that reject God will become increasingly beastly. When you pull away all the externals, when you pull away all that they do, they are just beastly. They are monstrous. There is little way that we have to describe them. But in the midst of this, it's not that this is going on by itself. There is something else that's going on in heaven. And so Daniel transported us to heaven, and that's where I reminded us that we need to put on our Revelation 7 glasses, or our our Daniel 7 glasses, or our Revelation 4 glasses, and realize that there is a throne And that that throne is occupied. And so while earth might be terribly monstrous and beastly, in heaven there is a throne where God is reigning. And then he came back at the end of chapter 7, and uh, we come back and we look at earth and heaven interacting, and there we see 
that even though the saints are under incredible pressure, even though the saints of the Most High are being um, persevered against, even though they are being worn out, even though they are being attacked, there is coming a final day at the end of this age when God will come in judgment and set all things right. And so that was the sort of the big picture conclusion that we had at the end of chapter 7. When we come to chapter 8, we have this big picture in our mind, but now we come down to an intimate picture of an example of what it will be like in the world until that final Antichrist comes. And in fact, we could see what is a recurring historical phenomenon that will continue to reoccur until Christ comes back again, and that is of the clever and ruthless dictator who stops at nothing to achieve their ambitions. The little horn in Daniel chapter 8 is, so to speak, a chip off the old block, which is the Antichrist, which John describes in his book where he says, Antichrist is coming, with a capital A. He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists, little a, have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. And so Daniel 8 gives us an example of a particular period of time and demonstrates the beastliness of earthly kingdoms and its impact on the people of God. And so as we think about this, there's a two sort of things that I want us to have in the back of our head. I think one of them I wrote in your note, but it's how are we to get along or how are we to live in this crazy, beastly world until the final kingdom of God comes in all its fullness? As one commentator put it, he says, What is all the fuss over a relatively obscure king? The implied response that Daniel gives us it's, is, it, is it is important for God's people to know and prepare for what they will have to face, not only near the end, but also along the way. In other words, Daniel, is a, Daniel 8 is about preparing to live in the end or uh, until the end. Another individual put it this way. The question of the chapter is, how do you persist in faith and obedience to God when you live under constant pressure and persecution and it seems like there is no imminent end in sight? I mean, both of those individuals are in encouraging us to look at chapter 8 as a, uh, an encouragement to perseverance in the midst of tough times. And so I want to look very quickly at the main characters and then come, I think, to the application of it for our lives. Um, we have Daniel. Uh, there's some historical geographical reference given here. He says it is in the, um, uh, what does he say? It, it's in the, what reign of the king? The third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. That puts us about uh, 548 B.C. And he's just had a vision about three years earlier which is recorded in chapter 7. And so this is now another vision that he has received. Daniel's vision places him in Susa. Susa is a significant city in the book of Nehemiah. It's a significant city in the book of Esther. It is a historical city. And it seems to me that Daniel is not in that city physically. He is there via a vision. He's been transported to the city by a vision. Just as John was taken by the Spirit up into heaven. And so it seems to me that that's the best way to understand Daniel because in chapter or verse 27 he says when all this was over he went about the king's business. Well the king's business was not in Susa, 
it was back in Babylon. So we have three pictures. The first is the two-horned ram. And that's simply Media and Persia. The ram with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The bigger horn is likely the king of Persia, the stronger of the two. And in verse 4, we have literally 200 years of history. Just 200 years of the Media Persian Empire going almost untouched in its expansion of its worldwide domination. The ram was like a kingdom wrecking ball, so to speak. These kings did as they pleased with the peoples of the earth. And the Bible says they became great. No other beast, no other king could stand before them. Nobody could rescue them from its power. And this kingdom or these kings were autonomous, it seemed. And I suspect it's this knowledge that maybe helped Daniel when he came to interpret the writing on the wall about nine or seven years, eight, eight years later. Uh, he understood that God was in control and that God would bring the kingdom of Babylon to an end. And so that's how we understand the two-horned ram. The, the answer, I said, is given in verse 20. The angel says those are the kings of Media and Persia. Then we come to the one-horned goat, and that is Greece. That's what we see in verse 21. Daniel saw this male goat moving across the face of the earth without touching the ground. That's just symbolizing incredible speed. And it points to an incredible swiftness. And this ram, which seemed so powerful and utterly undefeatable, was all of a sudden completely defeated, was cast to the ground and trampled upon. And this goat now became exceedingly great. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power, but this goat now was seemingly cut off in its prime. Almost complete agree agreement by both secular and Christian writers on this is that this is a reference to Alexander the Great. That Alexander the Great became an uh, army, or the general of the Greek army at 21. By the age 26, he had conquered most of the known world at that time, by the time he was 33, he died a depotched life. His conquests, though, are the stuff of almost myth. There was a particular battle, the Battle of the Granicus River in 334. And there Alexander the Great, with only 35,000 men, stormed across a river, attacking Darius's 100,000 footmen and 10,000 horsemen. And reportedly, uh, Alexander and his troops killed 20,000 and only lost 100 of their own. They were this massive wrecking force that just had incredible ability given by God to conquer. Some of you know how the history of the Greek Empire then, after his death, was divided amongst his four generals. That is the four horns here. Each of his four generals received a part of the kingdom. And out of this one horn, one of those four kingdoms, arose this seemingly insignificant horn. If we learn anything from history, and as we look at this, these, this little section here, we see how history can turn on a dime. It seems like one king is implanted and in power, and then something just extraordinary happens, and that king just disappears off the scene of the earth. I thought of uh, the, the famous line by um, Ronald Reagan at this point. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down your wall. And who would have thought that this wall that had been built would ever come down? And on a dime it turned. And so we see here how Alexander rises to power. 
how he dies at a young age, how his kingdom is given over to four men. Out of those four men, one kingdom is highlighted, out of which another little horn arises. This small horn that became great. Who is this? Well, this again is, there's, there's almost no disagreement. It's Antiochus IV. And he has given himself the name Epiphanes, and we'll mention something about that in a little bit. Most of the vision in Daniel 8 now is given over to describing this little horn. And the focus of this little horn was the glorious land, or the blessed land, which is Jerusalem. And as this horn grew, it grew great and even claimed to be God. His goal was to become God. His target was the worship of the true God. He will attack the worship of the people of God. He will attack the people who worship God. And he will attack the truth of that God. Again, there's no debate that this is Antiochus IV. He gave himself the title Epiphanes, which means God manifest. And so he believed himself to be God on earth. And you can read about him in the history books. You can read if you've got uh, the Apocrypha, the book of Maccabees, in, in 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees, in different sections, there is the historical account of some of the things that Antiochus did. You can read about his blasphemies, his arrogance, his love of power, his slaughter of tens of thousands of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, his desecration of the temple altar with a sacrifice of a pig and human sacrifices, his desecration of the temple where he set up a statue of Zeus, his cancellation of religious sacrifices, his attempts to abolish the practice of circumcision, how he profaned the Sabbath. He just set out to destroy the people of God and anything that God represented. The angel Gabriel explains further about him in verses 24 and 25. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. He shall destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. By his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he will destroy many, and he shall rise even against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but not by a human hand. What Daniel sees here is the final Antichrist embodying himself in this obscure but pretentious Greek monarch. And the same spirit that possessed Antiochus and allowed him to achieve his earthly success is the same spirit that will continue to possess men and women until the final Antichrist comes. In Antiochus IV, we get a little taste of Antichrist ahead of time. That's what Daniel is giving us insight into here. He's saying this is what small Antichrist will look like. They will embody the Antichrist who will come at the end of the age. And so Daniel 8 is a glimpse into the horror and the reality of beastly kingdoms as they oppose the kingdom of God. We are being warned here. We are being helped here to understand that the same kind of thing can happen in our day and in our age and in our time. The same spirit that embodied Antiochus, that has embodied Kim Il-jung, that embodies other world leaders to destroy the people of God, that same spirit is still at work in this world today. It can embody itself now as it did then, here as it did there. In this, and with all this kind of success, that it can have against the people of God. 
And these are the kinds of things that Daniel saw in his vision and what the angel said to him. Verse 26 is important. Some understand there the reference to 2,300 days um, as 2,300 days, or they cut it in half, which can be done to represent 1,150 days. I really think a case can be made for either of those. I think these days, though, however you understand them, encapsulate the whole period of Antiochus's reign. While neither way of looking at the numbers fits neatly into any historical event or events, this much is certain. The 23,000 or figure tells us that it is, first of all, a rather long period. In other words, it is a significant but limited period of suffering for the people of God. And yet the fact that this number of days, or this number is calculated in days, means that it is definitely a limited period of time. God has a precise calendar of events, accurate even to days. And so as we think about this number 2,300 days, the purpose of it, I think, for me and for us as God's people is not date setting, but comfort. It's not that we ought to try and figure out exact details of what this means and what that means. That's not the purpose of the 2,300 days. Rather, it's to comfort us to know that, yes, there will be time of suffering, but know that that time will be limited by God's sovereign power. And that's the same comfort that we take with us in these last days. These were not easy things for Daniel to understand as he saw them in his vision. The angelic interpreter, the interpretation, all of it seems overwhelming to Daniel. But the interpreter presses home to Daniel that this vision is for the time of the end in verse 17. And another reference to the end is made in verse 19. And then he is told to seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. So what is the end in chapter 8 that Daniel is referring to? Well, some think that it's a reference to the end of the age when Christ will return. This interpretation reads back into Daniel all the events of the return of Christ. And it finds its full expression in the New Testament. We know the end is when Christ comes and the judgments of God happen. But in the Old Testament, the end refers to the conclusion of a problem at hand. And the problem at hand here is Antiochus IV. And so I believe that the references to the end in chapter 8 are references to the end of the persecution and suffering that is at hand, or that will be at hand under Antiochus IV. Furthermore, the end in this context seems to be related to the question, how long, in verse 13. And so it would make sense to me that the end in mind here, the end referenced here, is the end of his reign. This is something to think about. I throw it out to you. Um, I'm not going to comment it. Um, you, may, you may have your thoughts on it, but why does it seem that tyrants get to walk all over God's people? Why is it that there seems to be so much pain inflicted upon the people of God? The thing that caught me as I was reflecting on that and reflecting on Daniel 8 is there is no concern, though, with the question, why? Rather, 
The concern is with the question, how long? You see, the question why somehow impinges on the sovereign work and plan and outworking of the plan and work of God in this world and in our lives. And there's a sense in which we have to come to accept Deuteronomy 29, where it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. So the concern is not so much with why, but with how long. And in fact, you find that same question repeated again and again by the psalmist. And here the question is actually posed by the angel. And I think there's comfort that should come to us, at least in reflecting on the fact that even heaven hosts are at pain as they think and as they observe and as they hear what will happen to God's people on earth. So how do we then take this picture and apply it to our lives? Because part of what we learn here is how do we wait in light of the end? Not only the end of a reign of an individual like Antiochus, but how do we wait until the end of the age when Christ will finally return in all his glory and all his power? It really does matter. Some here have probably given a great deal of thought to thinking about the end. It's, in biblical terms, it's known as eschatology, and there's a number of different ways that uh, eschatology helps us think about the end. And each one of the ways, though, help, um, uh, encourages or promotes a different way of living in light of the end. It's in matter of, uh, just for, because of time, I will just quickly mention them to you. There's premillennialism. It's a view that Christ is going to return before the millennium. And in that view, it's a generally a fairly pessimistic view of the world. It's a pessimistic view of culture, and it really is focused on the return of Christ, and, and living on life is not so much given uh, attention. There's another view, which is post-millennialism, which is a view that the end will come at the end of the millennium, so to speak. It's a much more positive view of things. It's a much more um, positive view of culture. It's a view that culture will eventually get better and better and better, and all of a sudden we'll be in the kingdom of God. And those who hold that view generally are very involved in culture and what takes place. And there's a third view of the end, which is all, millennialism, all millennialism or realized millennialism. It's a view which stresses really the symbolic interpretation of prophecies in Revelation and in apocalyptic literature. The millennium is a pictorial way of understanding or speaking of the not yet and the, or the not and the not yet. It's a way of thinking symbolically or pictorially of the reign of God. In other words, it views a present reality uh, to the reign of God where we are seated with God Christ right now in the heavenly realms. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings. Satan is now bound. His power to deceive the nations is limited by God. And many who hold this view sort of have a balance between we need to evangelize and we need to share about the coming kingdom of God. But we ought to also understand that we're not going to make this world better and Christianize it. In fact, the world is going to continue to get worse until Christ becomes. Each of those three views influences how we wait in general for the end. So let's come back to Daniel. Verse 27, and I'll end here this morning for another 10 minutes or so. But I think verse 27 is, is sort of the practical help for us as we wait for the end. One, we live in this reality that we understand some, but not all, 
of the prophecies and the pictures that God has given us in Scripture. This really shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, Daniel says there, he says, I did not understand it. He had had already been given an interpretation. He already knew portions of it, but he still wrestles with the fact that he didn't understand it. These events were in the distant future. But when you think about it, it seems a little bit odd. Because after all, hadn't Daniel been given this unique ability to understand the events of the end, to interpret dreams and to make sense of visions? That's what God's gift to him had been. And you can see it worked out in uh, Daniel chapter 1 through Daniel chapter 7. He was able to make sense of the writing on the wall. He was able to give the king his dream and its interpretation. He had this ability to understand these sorts of things. And yet here in chapter 8, and we'll come to gain in chapter 12, Daniel couldn't understand it. He couldn't figure it out. And against this background is Daniel 12.10, where it says, And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So you say, well, what's going on here? Well, it seems to me that both of those, both of those realities are happening on. There are some things that we will understand and we can understand. And there are a lot of things that we won't understand and God hasn't made them clear to us. You see, throughout this book, one thing has been driven home. God knows the future. His purposes are never thwarted. He knows the end from the beginning. He directs even the minutest of details. And yet there are some things that God has not revealed to us. For instance, in the New Testament, when Christ talks about his return, he says, concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And when it comes to the unfolding plan of redemption throughout history, it says in Peter, Peter writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to become or to be yours searched and inquired carefully, wondering what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the, sub- and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels long to look into. We do know more than the prophets about our redemption, about the plan of redemption. But we don't know everything. And if the angels in heaven have some blanks to fill in, ought we not to live in a sort of uh, comfortable tension realizing there are some blanks that we won't be able to fill in? Loved ones, we do need to keep in mind this truth. Because even in the day in which we live, there are considerable efforts to fix, if not the day, then at least the month or the year of the Lord's return. And in the face of those who say they understand how every world event fits into God's prophetic timetable, we we need to hold this balance. I'm sympathetic and I will listen to what individuals have to say but personally I don't think we are meant to know or will ever know exactly the prophetic timetable and how it will unfold and who the main characters will be only God knows that and how the end of the world will come we need to live with this tension that there are some things that we will know but there are many things that we will not know And we have seen already in the book of Daniel how God knows every detail of our world and of our lives. That God knows how all the events will unfold when his kingdom will come in its fullness. 
we should find comfort in his omniscience and his omnipotence. God has given us many details and a mind to know and to understand and to think about his unfolding plan and to look at the signs around us and to understand that this must indicate that, that, that we are moving towards the end. And yet we need to be comfortable with the fact that we will never know all the details. Awareness of the future, yes. Specific details of the future, probably not. And so as we face the end, we, we come into it with this understanding that there are some things we will understand and there's some things that we won't. The second thing that we noticed about Daniel, he says he was overcome and he lay sick for some days. Any idea what caused him his anguish and his pain? I think some of you have experienced this sort of thing. You receive news about someone or something. You need to keep it to yourself for a period of time. You're appalled. You're overcome. And in fact, sometimes you're physically sick about what you see and about what you've been told and what you know. As Daniel was given this vision and its interpretation, it caused him mental anguish and physical distress. He wasn't only appalled in, by what he had seen in chapter 7 of the suffering of the saints and the destruction of God's own people. I think as he considered the, the vision and what the angel had revealed to them, he was taken aback by the depth of evil that was displayed and by the coming judgment of God on those who reject him. In other words, Daniel physically identified with God's people in the future who would suffer so terribly, and with those in the future who would be caught up in kingdom expansions and go to the grave separated from God. Daniel didn't condemn the world around it. He broke for the world around him. And as he saw the incredible brutality, his mind and his body were shaken. You know, we know there is an end coming, don't we, as God's people here. We know that those who don't know God through Christ will be judged and separated from God eternally. Does that trouble us? Does it cause us anguish? It really did Daniel. It's easy to detach and distance ourselves from the evil and the pain and the suffering in the world around us and to kind of be the three monkeys, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. We get busy with our lives. We isolate ourselves from neighbors and family. We become soft in our hearts towards the thought of eternal judgment and even hell and eternal torment separated from God. We're not bothered anymore by these sorts of things. Jesus felt like Daniel did when he stood on the high place and looked over Jerusalem. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a head and gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? I think part of Daniel's anguish was just his intense pain and suffering as he thought about what was to come 
through this small a antichrist. One person wrote, the extent to which the lostness of the world around us touches our hearts is the extent to which we will be motivated to bring our neighbors the good news of the gospel and go on bringing it to them even when they don't want to hear it. I really do need to hear that exhortation from Daniel because I do get caught up in my own world and my own life and don't want to be overwhelmed and affected by what's going on in the lives of others in the world around me. So there are some things that we can understand and there's some things that we won't as we face the end. We ought to be appalled as we consider the end because of the intense suffering that people will experience and because of the expressions of evil that will be felt and experienced. And the third point is simply that Daniel was appalled but not paralyzed. He went about the king's business. I really think this is maybe so obvious that I missed it. Maybe you haven't missed it. But in verse 27 again, it says, Then I rose and went about the king's business. I got up and I went back to work. That's what Daniel is saying here. In a different context, one commentator suggests that the view on history on display in Daniel 8 calls for a sober and durable discipleship. The Jewish exile is almost over. The people will return to the beautiful land, but as the vision of Daniel reveals, they will endure some terrific hardship in, in the coming hundreds of years. Getting back to the land will not solve all their problems. Like the ancient Israel's, Israelites, we don't know when the end will come. It might be right around the corner. And it might yet be hundreds of years away. We simply do not know when the kingdom of God is going to come in all its fullness. We don't understand that precisely, the prophetic timetable. So how do we live in the meantime? Well, again, as Daniel models for us, we ought to be appalled but not paralyzed. We commit ourselves to a sober and durable discipleship. What's a man to do when we know the end is coming? Go back to work. He had served God faithfully, Daniel, and he continued to serve God faithfully. He engaged in the culture around him. He continued to believe what Jeremiah had said, build houses and live in them plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. For in its welfare you will find its welfare. Daniel didn't isolate himself from the culture around him. He didn't quit his job, even though it looked awful and it looked like the end was just about around the corner. He served God faithfully. There's incredible value for you and I to, even though we know all these things are going to happen, to go about doing the Lord's work until he comes. Our daily labors, whatever they might be, are not meaningless as we wait for Christ to come back. Christ has told us so many times in parables that we ought to work diligently. We ought to serve him. We ought to use our gifts and our talents and our abilities. We ought to serve him in our homes, in our churches, in our communities until 
he returns again. I thought it's really difficult to see from Scripture how things are going to get better in this world. Even so, though, as we wait for all these things to unfold, we should continue to fully engage and embrace the culture and the world around us. For some time now, I have been praying, and I continue to pray, and I know some of you are praying with me, that God will make us an expectant church. By that, I mean that God will give in the hearts and lives of his people here eyes that are constantly looking to heaven, expecting any moment for Christ to come back. But that doesn't mean then that we quit our jobs and we leave off working and we do nothing for the kingdom of God. It really means that we redouble our efforts and continue to serve God until that day actually comes. And so how do we wait for the end? We weep. We serve. And we trust that God knows the end from the beginning. Father, thank you for our time together this morning for this chapter in Daniel 8, which uh, gives us a glimpse of what so many have already experienced in this world and even what some of your children are experiencing right now and what we may yet experience as those who live in Parksville. I pray that you'll give us the mind of Daniel that will consider the example of Daniel and that that may guide our thinking as we live in light of these realities. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.